0: Father, we do thank you for this day of rest and worship and this day of fellowship uh, when we can come together and love you, be loved by you, and through your people. Uh, We pray that you would help us to make good use of the time. In Christ's name, amen. So, young people, this is your chance to flee the premises, and we will, come heck or high water, finish chapter 28 today. (laughs) So we've been discussing baptism uh, and really emphasizing the things that we have in common uh, across all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, And and I've got to thinking about it this week. Someone asked a question at the end of the class uh, last Sunday that was kind of getting to what the philosophical meaning behind baptism is. Why is it that baptism is so significant? And somebody else kind of interjected, why do we do this? Because God tells us to. And, and I was thinking about that over the week, and I think really that gets to the heart of why there are so many understandings of what baptism is. Because all Christians agree that God says, baptize. Uh, we all know that that's a command. Go into all the world and baptize. Uh, the apostles baptized. Uh, they, they connect baptism to salvation. So I think we have to begin with saying the scriptures command us to baptize. And then we can start to ask the questions, why? Why does, why is baptism? Yes. So um, that's a good question. Uh, Was this command strictly given to the to the apostles, and as we would say with miraculous healings, sign gifts, things like that, that these ceased with the apostolic age? And I would say the argument is twofold. One is Christ connects baptism to the end of the age. that, that this is the ongoing command to the end of the age in Matthew twenty-eight. And then also Paul in Colossians two connects baptism to circumcision. Uh, and so you know, he says baptism is the circumcision made without hands. And and so in the same way that baptism or that, that circumcision is the visible sign of inclusion in the Old Testament community of faith. So baptism is the New Testament sign of inclusion into the New Testament community of faith. Uh, So so I think the answer is twofold. One is simply that that Christ tells us to, and we don't see any command to stop. Uh, Whereas with the sign gifts there does seem to be some clear teaching that the sign gifts will stop. Uh, and I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, uh, where Paul says that tongues will cease, uh, that these these great charismatic gifts are going to come to an end, but love will remain always. Uh, and so, we seem to get an indication. Also, in uh, in Hebrews, <clears throat> the the writer to the Hebrews uh, makes a point of saying that Christ is the final word, and not to expect a further word. Uh, so, so that's kind of the exegetical or scriptural arguments for sign gifts ceasing. But we don't see that. Kind of argumentation in relationship to baptism. Yes, I mean yes. The the question is, was this command given exclusively to the disciples, or through the disciples to the church? And you're right. You're right. If if that command is exclusively given to the apostles, then you're right. We should no longer be going into all the world. Uh, we should just. <laughs> Well, that is true. Uh yeah. And and so the the point that I'm wanting to get at is to say <clears throat> whether you believe that baptism is properly administered only to adults who make a public profession of faith or or, or at least, you know, older children that are able to, to do that as well or whether you believe that baptism is properly given as a sign of the covenant to you and to your children, Uh, whichever one of those two sides that we come down on, the one thing that we both agree on is that Scripture commands us to baptize. Uh, and, And so we start from there, and then we try to dig out, okay, why? Uh, because our baptism should mean something. Uh, the baptism, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be participating in meaningless rituals. Uh, there's a reason that God gives us these things. They point us to something. They encourage us, uh, to, to something. Uh, whether it is encouraging us to make a public profession of faith, or whether it is encouraging us to remain faithful to God's covenant promises and the covenant community that we are born into, uh, whichever one of those two you come down on, what we agree on is that God commands us to baptize. Um, the other thing that we agree on is that, and, and this goes all the way back to the first uh, lesson that we did here on this chapter, is that baptism is very, very closely connected to regeneration. Regeneration meaning being born again, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, having the the, the old man put to death and the new man created. Uh, in the image of God. There's a tight connection between baptism and regeneration. It's so tight that some, and particularly the churches of Christ, say that you cannot have one without the other. Uh, So, if you go to a Church of Christ congregation and you witness a baptism, what they will say as the person is going down under the water is, are you prepared to be born again? To be lowered in and raised up to new life in Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the baptism from the uh, regeneration this is being born again uh, now i don't think that that's accurate uh obviously uh because i don't do that uh but i appreciate the fact that they they see this very very tight connection uh when when someone asked uh, peter you know what what should we do to be saved he said repent and be baptized uh for the forgiveness of sins so, so there's, a, there's a very tight connection between regeneration and baptism. Now, so we all agree on that, that these two are very closely related, so much so that the Church of Christ will say they are one and the same. Uh, our Baptist brothers and sisters will say that we have to show sign of regeneration prior to the administration of baptism. So so they're looking for this, this public profession of faith. They're looking for a sign from the individual that this individual is born again before they allow the individual to be baptized. Now, in the covenant community, and so this is going to be Lutheran, uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, obviously, uh, Anglican, Episcopalian, uh, so and and I'm not including the Roman Catholics here because the Roman Catholic tends to. Uh, we we can we can do a whole series on what Rome gets wrong about baptism. Uh, but, but, so, let's set that aside. I'm not going to spend four days on what Rome gets wrong about baptism, but we're just saying of the evangelical community, the community that acknowledges that you need to make a profession of faith to be born again, that that there's a close connection uh, between these two things so so, in in this category of people, we do maintain the close relationship between baptism and regeneration because the Scripture maintains it. Scripture gives a close connection between baptism and regeneration. So the question becomes, is that baby that Lutheran baby, that Methodist baby, that Presbyterian baby, that Anglican baby, that Episcopalian baby, is that baby born again? So I've got a clear no. (laughs) And I would argue absolutely that baby is. We can anticipate that that child is regenerated. And the reason that I would argue that it is, is because throughout the scriptures, regeneration is always a sovereign act of God. Regeneration never depends on me. Uh, Regeneration, it's, it's, I will put a new heart in you. These dead bones, preach to them and they will rise up and walk around. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Lazarus is the perfect example of someone being born again. And Lazarus did absolutely nothing (laughs) to contribute to his regeneration. He laid there dead. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And that's what God does in regenerating. Now, when that happens, I don't know. we and And so our confession does say we need to be careful not to connect inseparably. There is not an inseparable connection between baptism and regeneration. And that's what section 5 is saying. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding... By the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs to, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. And and so for support for that, I would ask was every Israelite who was circumcised, were they necessarily born again? No. But if you were an Israelite that refused to be circumcised, or if you were an Israelite that refused to circumcise your sons at infancy, then you were not in covenant with God. Uh, so there's a, there's a command, there's a duty to this, and we would anticipate, and, and, you know, any parent of, of covenant children can, can testify. Uh, there are some of my children that I have seen grown up in the, grow up in the church, and I will tell you this, there was never one single day When they got down on their knees and they said, dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart and forgive me of my sins. Now, if you're willing to say that therefore my children are not regenerate, we can have a further conversation. But my children, I would not say every single one of them are walking with the Lord. Uh, it's it's (laughs) it's, It's a mixed result. And they're not. You know, God's not called them to the end of their life and so there is fully time, uh, yada yada. But what I'm saying is there was not a moment in time when my, when one of my children went from unregenerate to regenerate that I can point to except for the moment in time when they were baptized. Uh, That's the only moment in time that this public sign of regeneration was connected to the child. There was no getting on knees and asking Jesus into hearts. Uh, and, And so that's what our confession is saying is that we can anticipate that there will be a connection there such that our children, infants who are born again, or who are baptized, are also born again. However, you'll notice as I read that section, it says these two are not so inseparably linked such that everyone who has been baptized is born again, nor are they so inseparably linked that everyone who is born again has been baptized. And for proof of that, we've got the thief on the cross. Uh, the thief on the cross most clearly was not baptized, uh, and yet he absolutely is is guaranteed to be in Christ's kingdom with him. Uh, he was regenerated there on the cross, on his own cross. Uh, but um, so so that's the when when we're looking in covenantal circles, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopalian, the 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 communities of faith that believe that baptism is rightly administered to infants. We are acknowledging that there is that connection between baptism and regeneration. And so we're anticipating from everything we know, from everything that we can see outward, only God sees the heart, but from everything that we see outward, this child is born again. And so my parenting of this child is going to be very, very different. And I'll give you just a quick example. Just a quick example. I had a friend, this is years and years and years ago, completely different church, different state, etc. But I had a friend who was a very committed Baptist. He had gone to seminary, uh, he was a member of our church, uh, but he was absolutely committed as a Baptist. And... He believed that his son, his oldest son, who at the time was four or five years old, was not born again because that oldest son had never made his own profession of faith. And so his son asked him one time, "Daddy, why can't I pray?" Because the father would not allow him to pray. Uh, you shouldn't You should never encourage an unbeliever to pray for God's blessing on their day, the only thing we should encourage an unbeliever to pray for is the Holy Spirit. Uh, (laughs) Repentance. That's the first prayer that God ever hears, is the prayer of repentance. Uh, I don't want to encourage my Muslim neighbor to cry out to God for his blessings on my Muslim neighbor's life. I want my Muslim neighbor to cry out to God in repentance and faith. That's the prayer that God hears from the unbeliever. And so the child had no business praying until that child was ready to make his public profession of faith. And at four or five years old, he clearly didn't understand enough to pass dad's standard uh, for a profession of faith. So he was a non-believer. And that child was just looking at his daddy going, but I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I, and, and my friend, it was, it was kind of a, you know, obviously we were arguing with him from scripture, from theology, blah, 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 blah. But, but his tipping point, his tipping point was when he realized my son is a believer. And all of my theology about he needs to do this, 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 and this is hogwash. My son believes. And he realized that it's not that moment of intellectual ownership, of understanding. You know, a, a kid doesn't understand the, the complexities of, of the sin nature. And, you know, you've got to explain to a child what sin is. Uh, and, and so the, the children don't really have the grasp that we would expect of an adult or an older person. Uh, such that they can own their faith in that way, which, by the way, is why, as all this other group, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopalian, all of these other groups make a distinction between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, You are baptized based upon God's covenant promises, based upon the promises that I will be a god to you and to your children after you that's the promise that was given to Abraham peter repeats that promise in acts chapter 2 the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off that's the abrahamic covenant out of peter's mouth coming to give me a second let me finish coming to the end of this of you know the, the his sermon um, so we all, where was I going with this? We we all acknowledge, uh, oh, the, the, so the difference, the difference is that at the Lord's table, we're looking for what the Baptist is looking for, for baptism. We do look for a public profession of faith. And when a child or young person is coming to, the session and wanting to be examined in order to be able to come to the Lord's table, we're asking the exact same questions that our Baptist brothers and sisters are asking before they will baptize. Uh, So so the exact same questions, what is the gospel? Do you understand, uh, you know, your need for the gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, In what way are you clinging to Christ? In what way are you living out... So so baptism and the Lord's Supper for everybody except Baptists, <laughs> uh well, and Church of Christ, I guess. Uh, I'm not I'm not really familiar with what the Church of Christ's view on the Lord's Supper is. But at any rate, uh for for the Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopal, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper are two separate things. One is pointing us to God's covenant promises. His promises to Abraham, the, Peter says, this promise continues. The other is the individual's faith, the individual's Christian testimony. Uh, whereas our Baptist brothers and sisters tend to put the two together uh, so that when someone is baptized, they're typically also admitted to the Lord's table. Uh, They typically will not separate those two issues because they're looking for the two issues to do essentially the same thing. Uh, It's a public profession of faith. Uh, We would say, yes, it's a public profession of faith, but it's a public profession of the parents' faith uh, when they're bringing their children. Their parents are clinging to the promises that God gave to Abraham. I will be a God to you and to your children and you are to apply the sign of my promise to your children. And then Peter takes it up and says, this continues. Uh, this continues in the New Testament church. And then just quickly, and then I'll get to your question. <laughs> Very quickly, I would say, one of the arguments in, in my mind for this is simply the way that Paul speaks in the New Testament. How is it that I can say children, obey your parents in the Lord if I do not know whether those children are in the Lord uh, any, more, any more than I should be saying my dear Muslim friend obey your parent in the Lord. Uh, he can't. He cannot obey in the Lord. Uh, he is not in the Lord. Uh, Paul assumed this covenant community, Paul assumes this relationship of the children to the community such that he can just generally, broadly address them as believers, uh, as members of the covenant community with duties in the covenant community. And at the same time, I would say we do need to press upon our children their responsibility to make that individual profession of faith. There are far too many children who grow up in covenantal communities who are frankly lazy when it comes to coming to the table. And this should not be. The table is as important as baptism is. And so in the same way that a Baptist would be shocked that someone is a member of the church and has lived their whole life and has never been baptized, a Baptist would say... What are you doing? You know, that is just a clear disobedience to Scripture, and they would be right. Uh, in the same way, our children should be hungry for the table. They should be wanting to make that public profession of faith. They should be wanting to, to receive the grace that is, that is theirs in this meal. Uh, it is such a nourishment. It is such a refreshment. It is, if you are taking it rightly... Uh the table is I mean it, it is it is the gospel felt, it is the gospel tasted in the same way that the preaching is the gospel heard. So I got the watch signal again already, but I've been charging forward and not answering your questions. <laughs> so let me pause. I to go back to that. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's an example of how God sovereignly brings people to life. Paul uses that language in Ephesians 2. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He made you alive. Uh, He doesn't say you chose God. Sure, I'm not saying I, I did not intend to say that Lazarus was unregenerate until that moment. I'm saying Lazarus is an example, <laughs> in the same way that God tells Ezekiel to preach to the valley of dead bones. Uh, he's giving an example. We do. That's right, and that's what I'm not saying. In fact, our confession says baptism is not inseparably connected to regeneration. Yes, they are a mixed multitude. Uh, they always were and always will be. And and that's true whether you're a Presbyterian or a Baptist. There's always going to be people who have been baptized who are in hell uh, because those two things never... Puzzle pieced together the way that they're supposed to. <laughs> Darcy? Right, an example of of what God does, but but you you mentioned something there that I don't think we've really developed. I may have done it back in the chapter on the church, but the distinction between the visible and invisible church—that really is a critical uh, distinction, and and that's something that. Uh, all right, I'm already over. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so, federal vision uh, became a big issue in, in reform circles that, frankly, it's having a resurgence today. Uh, federal vision is, is making a comeback amongst a lot of young people. Uh, and, and the core foundational problem with federal vision so, if you ever run across federal vision language, the core problem is that they refuse that distinction between the visible and invisible church. They say you can only speak of the church. And so anything that is true of the visible church, we should expect to be true of the invisible church. And from that basic error, that very basic foundational error, all of their other errors grow. Uh, and, And so again, that's a... Sounds like Jeremy already touched on it, but that distinction between the visible and invisible church is absolutely critical uh, in order to maintain a. Uh, it's in order to maintain orthodoxy. Uh, I'm, I'm in in using that word. I'm being intentional, but I'm also being provocative. So, people on the internet can all shriek. Um, but then the final thing, because I promise we're getting done with chapter 28 today, the final thing is baptism is only to be administered once uh, to any person. That becomes the controversy. Should a Roman Catholic who becomes uh, a Protestant, should they be baptized? Did their first baptism count? And there are differences of opinion, including within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church on that. One of the things when I face this issue, this question in Uganda, because you know the established church in Uganda is the church of Uganda, it's the Anglican church. Uh, when people would come out of the Anglican church and come into it's called the Balokole, uh the uh, uh evangelical church, uh the believers. Uh when they come into the Balokole, uh should they be baptized? And I got asked that question all the time. And my answer was how many times can you be circumcised? Can you be circumcised? If baptism is circumcision in the new covenant, then baptism is only to be administered once. Uh, if you get two circumcisions, you got some serious problems. And uh, baptism is only to be administered once. Uh, to to any believer. So, I'll close there. I'm way over time. Uh, I'm sure I've convinced everybody in the room. but, uh, But let me close with prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have given to us these things that are mysterious, these things that are controversial, these things that we don't all see eye to eye on. But through these things, such as baptism, such as the Lord's Supper, we see our Savior. We see the Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, and Father, we pray that as we try to rightly understand these doctrines, uh, that we would look through them, through the signs, to the reality that they point to and seize upon that, that we are washed, we are renewed to newness of life, and we are to live holy lives that are pleasing unto you. In Christ's name, amen.